I tell you what, there's a couple of very interesting stories I wanted to touch on on a Monday morning. The first involves the work of Bernard Salt and a bunch of people around our expectations around our ages. When are you an adult? When are you not? When are you old? When are you not? So there was some work commissioned by the AMP that involved Bernard Salt that I'll get to in just a sec. And on the weekend, writing in the Weekend Australian, uh, Bernard put the question, which are the top towns in Australia? And he goes through that exercise, and it's fascinating, I have to tell you. So I want to touch on both these things with Bernard Salt, who's the Managing Director of the Demographics Group, a columnist with The Australian. He's on the line. How are you, sir? Very well, thanks, Luke. Nice to talk to you again. Let's go back to this uh, AMP-funded report from last week, Australia's Attitude to Wealth Through the Life Cycle. I'm particularly keen to understand what the age groupings are now compared to what they were, because we don't have to go back, I guess, all that long to think that, you know, when you got to 60 or 65, you probably didn't have long to go. But it's very different today, isn't it? Very much so. In fact, life expectancy for the average Australian today is 84 years, a little bit more for women, a little bit less for men, but 84 years. If you were to go back to, say, 1950, life expectancy for the average Australian was 69 years. So life expectancy for the average Aussie has kicked out 15 years over the last seven decades. Very interestingly, it means that in 1950, you didn't really have to plan for retirement, no need for superannuation and all that angst about retirement because from 65 you got the age pension, but life expectancy was 69, so it wasn't that long. Seven decades later, and it's completely turned around, you you do still retire at 65 or get access to the age pension, but on average got at least another 20 years, and in fact for females it's longer than that. So two plus decades is a long time to uh, sit around and babysit the grandkids. You reinvent that stage in the life cycle, and I think that's what we're doing now. But it also means that you need to prepare for that right throughout your life cycle or working life with superannuation and other investments and whatever, hopefully to, uh, to improve your quality of life and to give you freedoms when you finally stop working. So in the 50s, I think you talk about three distinct categories, 0 to 12 child, 13 to 60 adult, and 61 to 69 old. But I think now you talk about six life stages, don't you? Very much so. Yes, back in the 50s, very simple, kid for 12 years, then you're an adult, then you get old and you die. That's basically it. Whereas today, it's much more nuanced, in fact. So you've got a longer time span, so 85 years instead of just 69 or so. So childhood is still the same, 0 to 12, that's pretty much puberty. Then there's the five years or so, six years or so of teenage years, 13 to 19, and then 20 through to 27, I'm saying as young adults, you could bunch those together and say 13 to 27 is kind of an extended adolescence, if you like. Yeah. And you become an adult, I think, at the age of 28. And my rationale there is that the average age at first marriage for an Australian woman is 28, and then soon after comes the first baby. If you go back to 1950, average age at first marriage for an Australian woman was 21. So seven years have opened up and of course tertiary education travel gap years careers and so forth but then that means you're an adult i think from 28 through to 55 where you're raising kids and then teenagers then hopefully they leave home 
Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> well, there's a bit of a mix here, isn't there, yes. uh, in the 50s. Then 55 to 65, I'm calling the lifestyle stage in the life cycle. This is where you scale back. The kids are leaving, leaving home. You should have paid off the home. Hopefully you've paid off the house or substantially. And it's time to draw a dividend of your working life. And you might work five days, then four days, then three days, then two days, then one day per week, and then officially retire at 65. And then retirement, I think, goes for that retirement phase, goes for 10, 12 years where you might be going on a cruise or enjoying the grandkids or doing whatever you're doing or, you know, move to the Gold Coast or whatever. And then you get old at the age of 77 or 78. Now, I've used my understanding of the time in the life cycle where people mostly often go into aged care. Although speaking with aged care people over the last week or so, they say, look, you know, it's actually kicking out a bit to 80, 81, even 82. So maybe you don't get old until you're 81 or 82. I reserve the right to continually push that back the older I get. The advantage of being in demographics, you see. (laughs) Go your hardest. Tell me about home ownership, because uh, looking at the census, I think you revealed that in 1966, ownership rates were about 73%. They're a lot lower today, aren't they? Yes, they are. This is actually from the AMP Wealth Report, and there is a new data set that I got specifically for this report. I've never seen it published before, and it's a question I've always been curious about. At what time in Australian history was home ownership highest? What was that number and when was it? And in order to get that, we had to go back through every census, PDFs off the internet, and it was really hard to do. Mm. And we came up and we found that in 1966, the proportion of all dwellings in Australia that was owned outright or with a mortgage was 73%. So that it's never been higher than 73%, but it was... 55-plus years or so ago. At the 2021 census, it wasn't 73, of course. It was 63. Now, it hasn't plummeted entirely. It's dropped 10 percentage points. And I think this is because people are making different choices in their 20s. You know, that average age of first marriage, instead of 21, it's now 28. So people are using that time not to buy a house, but for forming relationships trialing relationships and then making a choice in the uh, in the late 20s. Uh, in fact, there's also higher incidences of separations and divorce today. You know, in 1966, I've had a very high marriage rate, but I'm sure a lot of those were less than happy relationships. Mm. No-fault divorce became available in the mid-70s. So there's a number of shifts. And you'd say, well, yes, home ownership is still critical in Australia, but other things are as well, like superannuation. You know, of course, we get that debate at the moment. We did a number of focus groups where people said how, what they thought wealthy was today. And I've boiled the answers down to it's having the ability to respond to challenges or options that are presented to you at different stages in the life cycle if you can act on a decision. And that, look, that might have been a response coming out of the pandemic, but it kind of fits with the Australian stick of the pursuit of freedom, options, lifestyle, quality of life. Housing is still really, really important, but it's just conceded a bit to open up these other options as well. Yeah, fascinating stuff. 
Now, to your excellent work on the weekend in the Australian <laughs> newspaper, which I ask people to go and have a look at if you find a moment or two, where is the best place to live in Australia? Now, there's a, a few rules at play here, so it's not every town or every suburb of every city. You decided really to look at towns, essentially, didn't you? I did. Uh, country towns. So yeah. um, not Melbourne, not Sydney, not Brisbane or the Gold Coast or whatever. So smallish towns. Anywhere with a population of 1,000 people at a minimum and up to 50,000. And there are 752 towns in Australia. Shepparton is the biggest one at 49,000. And there's a number at around about 1,000 people. So you're just looking at that band of, you know, if I want to go to a small country town and downshift, downsize, sea change, tree change, that sort of thing, where's the best town? So 752 towns, and I grab them from the census, And then I start to filter them on a number of different hurdles or metrics. Does it have a low level of unemployment? Does it have above average level of income? Is it highly skilled with university education and trade training uh, certificates, for example? Is it civic minded? Do the people there volunteer? Is that above Mm. average? Mm. Are they caring? Is, Is there a high preparedness to care for a family member? As an example, are they entrepreneurial? Are there business owners in that town? All of those all of those metrics are available through the census. You take 752 towns, push them through this model, make it's like demographic survivor. <laughs> the, the towns that come out the end meet yeah. all the all the criteria. The winner is in New South Wales. On the New South Wales South Coast, it is Kiama. 14,000 people, and it meets all those metrics, in fact. And uh, if you look around in Brisbane or Queensland, it was Tambourine Mountain up behind the uh, the Gold Coast. Victoria was the alpine town of Bright. South Australia, it was the tree change town, hills town of uh, Mount Barker. In Western Australia, it was a place down near Busselton called Dunsborough. In Tassie, it was a little town on the Tamar River north of Launceston called Lagana. And in the top end, it was Nullumbi. Very wow. high income in Nullumbi. Very high volunteering rates yeah. in um, in Bright. And best overall, Kiama. So congratulations, Kiamarans. Well done, Kiama. One of the metrics you have here is at least 14% provide unpaid mm. care, for example, to a relative. And you're looking at 17% at least volunteerism. So that's the community-minded aspect of it. What about no less than 14% born overseas? Yes, I took the average of the 752 towns on all of those criteria. Hmm. And I said, well, we are a multicultural community. And so there should be reasonable representation, average representation of our immigrant community in these towns. So it was inclusive and diverse. When you put that through all of the towns, a lot of towns in New South Wales pop up, but not many in Victoria. And wow. I suspect that is the migrant community in Victoria kind of stick around in Melbourne. Yes. And in Sydney, I think, oh, actually, you know, I've done enough up here. I'll, um, I'll move down to Kiama. Yes. Uh, or to Mossvale. That was another one. Yeah. Um, a, a little town just west of Kaima called Jamboree. Never heard of that one before. It made it. All these kind of little, cute little tree changing lifestyle places about two hours from Sydney or from Brisbane or Gold Coast, Tambourine Mountain. Yeah. And in Victoria, it's about two hours to Bright from Melbourne. Have you heard back from mayors, 
who thought, you know what, we should have won this. Have they started that yet, Bernard? <laughs> no, I haven't. However, my, uh, my article um, lists 36 finalists. So I thought, oh, that's, it's a good chance that you, you get a lot of happy people. You get 36 happy people to have at least been nominated as finalists. <laughs> so a finalist is a town that got through maybe eight of the hurdles, you know, and fell right. off the last one or two. But Kayama came through all of those 10. Very interestingly, looking at the comments in The Australian and the feedback, you know, I get a lot of feedback on social media around these things. And the view, I think, was that, you know, it's interesting, but access to medical services. And if I was doing it again, I would have said, there is a way you can actually discern the number of GPs in communities and Ah. looking at a metric like the number of people to support one local GP. And you want that number as low as possible. Of course. At an Australia-wide level, it's 300 Australians to one GP. I don't know how many GPs there are in Kiama, but 14,000 people. <laughs> it should be 50 or something like that, just off the top of my head, you know, for yeah. that whole... And then they yeah. kind of serve the wider region. Of course. The other feedback you might get is, why are you telling everyone our secret? Please leave us alone. That's the other side of it. There was a a lot of comments like that on the Australian's website. Please don't mention our town. (laughs) Uh, But look, you know, I think there's a lot of debate about these sort of things. A lot of people said, you know, I I didn't, you know, one site which towns, but a lot of people said I didn't think that was such a good town or whatever. What I have found over the years is that Australians are very proud of their community, you know, whether it's you know, whether it's a Sydney or it's a Brisbane or a Melbourne or, or even a little town out in the middle of nowhere. We're very town proud. You know how people yes. can be house proud? Yeah. Aussies are town proud, uh, yeah. in fact. Very yeah. patriotic about their communities. And when you look at the volunteering rates, you know, the average adult in Australia, about 17% will volunteer. You know, go to somewhere like Bright and it's 30%. And even in Kiama, it's in the high 20s. So very, very community-minded. Indeed. The other metric I used was the number of hours per person, on average, spent doing housework inside and outside the home. So are they house-proud? But there's more to this than, you know, whether they're just tidying up the house and doing whatever. My argument is, for that number to be very high, it needs both genders making contribution to housework. You know, maybe the like out doing the gardening and the lady doing whatever or vice versa, whatever it is. Yep. To have a high proportion, you need both genders. And to me, that suggests this community is not just civic-minded, it's not just caring, it's also cooperative. People have common values, common goals. That's the only way you can get a high figure. And yet again, Kayama mm. shoots to the top. Fascinating. Managing Director of the Demographics Group, columnist with The Australian, Bernard Salt. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Luke.